Chapter Two of Bert Wilson at the Wheel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. Bert Wilson at the Wheel by J. W. Duffeld. Chapter Two The Flying Auto. A group of the campers stood regarding the big red touring car rather dubiously. The fact is, Bob Ward was saying as he meditatively chewed a long piece of grass, you can never tell when the fool thing is going to go back on you. I used to drive my uncle's car a good deal, but I never could go very far without some part of the machinery breaking down. Uncle Jack said I was a Jonah. And I guess I was, because he could run the pesky thing all over the country if I wasn't with him. And it would go like a bird. One day I ran it into a fence and nearly got killed, so I took the hint and haven't fooled with one since. But we ought to make a try at locating a site for the new camp, Frank Edgewood objected. We volunteered and we'll be the laughing stock of the whole camp if we don't succeed besides breaking our word to Mr. Hollis. Yes, I don't know why you said you could do it if you're going to get cold feet at the last minute, said Jim. I haven't got cold feet, Bob defended hotly. Then virtuously, it isn't because of my own danger that I hesitate, but I don't like to drag you fellows into it with me. If you don't mind breaking your own neck, you needn't worry about ours, said Dave Ferris. We'll stay here while you take a little spin across the country, grinning wickedly. Of course, if you should find a good camp location in the meantime, you could claim all the glory. This last condescendingly. Before Bob had time to retort a cry of Bert, Bert Wilson caught the boy's attention, and they turned in time to see a young fellow take a flying leap over one of the fences and land in the midst of the group of excited welcoming friends. Make-believe we're not glad to see you, Bert. We thought you wouldn't be able to get off this year. Tom Henderson spread that report. Where is he? Wait till I get him. You ought to have a ducking, and other undeserved threats were hurled at poor Tom's innocent head. Hold on, fellows, said Bert, laughing. Tom wasn't to blame. I didn't know myself that I could make the camp until yesterday. At that moment, the maligned Tom dashed up, nearly upsetting his friend in an ecstasy of delight. You're a brick with a capital B, and the best kind of a sight for sore eyes, gasped Tom, getting his breath back by degrees. I was never so glad to see anyone in my life. And you came just in the nick of time, too, to help us out. Then, dragging his friend away unceremoniously, Tom explained the situation in which he and the other volunteers found themselves. You will help us out, won't you, Bert? he asked appealingly. By the time the rest of the volunteers had come up and were eagerly awaiting the decision, when they heard Bert's hearty, surest thing you know, they went wild, and after giving him three cheers and a tiger, 
marched him off to the mess tent, there to partake of cornbread and maple syrup. This last had such a good effect on Bert as to lead him to say that the fellow who had never known the gastronomic delight of cornbread spread thick with maple syrup didn't know what it was to live. The dramatic arrival of Bert at the camp, just when they most felt the need of him, had been almost as unexpected to him as to the other campers. Through the recommendation of Mr. Hollis, he had secured a position with a large manufacturing business in New York. There, from the very start, he had made good, and his industry and ability were soon noted by his employer. It was not long before his salary was increased, and larger opportunities afforded him, and he soon found himself treading the path that was bound to lead to success. Of course, like every other healthy boy, he felt the need of friends and recreation. The first he found in Tom Henderson, with whom he struck up a great friendship. Another crony was Frank Edgewood, who worked on the same floor as himself. When the work of the day was done, they were usually found together, either in each other's rooms or at some of the places of wholesome recreation of which the city offers so great a variety. If Bert had one trait that stood out more prominently than any of the others, it was his love of mechanics. Anything in the way of a clever mechanical toy, a puzzle or a machine attracted him immensely. He wanted to see the wheels go round, especially was this true in the case of automobiles, the huge machine moving so swiftly, so noiselessly, with such a sense of freedom and the sensation of flying, drew him like a magnet. He scarcely dared to dream that one day he might be the actual owner of a motor car. But he did hope that some day or other his hand might be on the wheel, his foot upon the brake, while he steered the flying monster as it sped like a flash across the country. His dream seemed perceptibly nearer being realized when Tom introduced him to the owner of the garage in the vicinity of his home. There he speedily became familiar with every joint and crank and lever of the great machines. He saw them taken apart and put together. He saw them brought in battered, broken, and almost wrecked, and made as good as new. From theory to practice was not far. Little by little, he was permitted to help in the minor repairs. After a while, he was entrusted with short trips, at first in the company of an experienced chauffeur, and at last on his own responsibility. It was not long before he felt capable to handle, steer, drive, and repair, and if he had cared to do so, he would have had no difficulty in passing an examination and securing a license to drive a car. His idea of recreation ran in the same direction. Whenever there was a motor meet anywhere within reach, especially on Saturday afternoon, which was half holiday at the factory, Bert could be found accompanied by either Tom, Frank, or both, watching with intense delight the exciting incidents of the race. The crowd, the start, the great machines flying by like streets of lightning, 
the roar of the partisans of each car as their favorite took the lead, and above all, the frantic excitement and enthusiasm at the finish as the victor flew across the line. All these things stirred his blood with inexpressible delight. On another occasion, he and his chums had visited the greatest show on earth. He had laughed at the clowns and been thrilled by the acrobats. Every pore of his body had drunk in with delight the tremendous feats of skill and daring that appeal so strongly to a boy. But the one supreme thrill, the one he never forgot, the one that repeated itself over and over again in his dreams, was when the automobile, with its daring operator, starting from the very top of the immense building, amid the death-like hush of the crowd, flew like a flash down the steep incline, sprang into space, turned a complete somersault, and, lighting on the further side of the gap, rushed across the arena. This was the climax of everything. Little else appealed to Bert. He talked of nothing else on the way home. There was no use talking. The auto fever was in his blood. With this passionate delight in his favorite machine, Bert's feeling can be understood when he learned that the chief feature of the boys' encampment when the summer opened was to be an automobile hike, the car itself having been kindly loaned by Mr. Hollis. At first, owing to conditions at the factory, he had feared that he would not be able to go at the time set for the encampment, and his disappointment was crushing. The quiet little talk of Mr. Hollis's with his employer, however, had adjusted things so that he learned at the last moment he would be able to go. We have already seen how uproariously he had been received by his old companions when he came so unexpectedly into the howling mob of enthusiasts at the summer camp. In less time after his arrival than it takes to tell, Bert was clad in khaki and obtained the ready permission of Mr. Hollis to take the boys on their desired expedition. The fellows scrambled into their adored Red Scout with more haste than grace. While Bert was busy cranking it, then with a cry of all right back there and an answering shout of you bet your life, the great car started smoothly up the ascent. As it quickened its speed and disappeared around a bend in the road, more than one of the boys at the camp wished he'd been quicker to offer his services. If I'd only known that Bert would be here, I'd have been one of the first to volunteer. But I must say I wasn't so anxious to trust my neck to Bob's safekeeping. He doesn't know anything more about running an automobile than I do, and when Jim said that he was saying a great deal. Meanwhile, the Red Scout passengers were having the time of their lives. Gee, it's like flying, said Frank joyfully. It's a heap sight better, challenged Tom. Can't you make it go faster, he asked of Bert. I guess yes, Bert shouted as he put on more speed. The automobile darted forward like a live thing, and the boys were enraptured by the rapidity of its motion. It almost seemed to them as though the Red Scout were standing still and all the scenery were flying past. Hardly did the farmhouses come in sight than they were past and lost in the distance. Scores of timid little woodland creatures scurried away to the shelter of holes and empty logs, 
surprised and alarmed at the streak of red lightning that flashed by. Mother birds hovered protectively over their fledglings, ready to defend them against the whole world if necessary, while excited squirrels scolded noisily from the treetops long after they had any excuse for it. On, on they rushed along roads over which giant trees met, past meadowlands where cattle grazed lazily, over bridges, past sparkling brooks that formed miniature waterfalls as they rushed over the stones. On, on. As they slowed to take a sharp bend in the road, they came face to face with another automobile, dashing along at reckless speed. Fortunately, both Bert and the driver of the other machine kept their presence of mind. Before anyone had a chance to realize what was happening, Bert had swerved the scout way over to the right side of the road. There happened to be a fairly deep depression on that side, so Bert had the choice of two evils. He had either to crash squarely into the other automobile, or he had to run the risk of having his own machine turn turtle. He chose the lesser danger and ran into the ditch. However, it wasn't as bad as it easily might have been, for only the front and rear wheels on one side of the car were in the depression. Even at that, they came within a hair's breadth of being upset. As soon as the boys could pull themselves together, they tumbled out of the car. The occupants of the other car were four men, who sprang out at once to see if they could be of service in any way. I think we'd better improvise a lever, Bert suggested. That may look all right in print, grumbled Bob, but how are you going to do it? I know how we can work it all right, said one of the men. See those big stones over there? Well, the first thing to do is to bring them over here. Oh, I see what you mean to do, Bert chimed in eagerly. There are lots of big tree branches lying around. Looks as if they had been blown down in some storm. Guess you've got the right idea, son, said the man who had first spoken. Now let's get down to business. It was a work of time to place the stones in the right position and to pick out the branches that would stand the strain. It proved a tremendous task to lift the heavy car. At times they almost despaired of moving it. However, it was that very desperation that gave them the strength at last. Inch by inch, slowly, carefully, they finally forced the great car upward until, with a sigh of relief, they realized the task was finished. The boys dropped to the ground, exhausted by the unusual exertion. It doesn't take very long, though, for strong, healthy boys to recover from any strain, however great. So in a few minutes they were again in the car and ready to start for camp. It was too late to go further, and after thanking the men for their help, they started back, slowly this time. It was after dark when they reached camp, and Mr. Hollis, although confident of Bert's resourcefulness, was beginning to be slightly worried when the wanderers appeared at last upon the scene. In a very few moments, the half-famished boys were seated at a most appetizing meal, to which they did full justice. The rest of the fellows listened with great interest, while Tom related the adventure. 
Bert and Mr. Hollis, at a little distance, discussed the events of the day and planned to renew the trip on the following morning. It was only when everything was quiet in the camp and the boys were supposed to be asleep that Tom, rising on his elbow, called out softly, Hello, are you asleep over there? Just turning the corner came a sleepy voice. We'll stay on this side for a minute. I was thinking that in that wild ride we never even looked for a place to pitch camp. Gee, that's so, came the voice, a little less sleepy this time. Well, of all the boneheads, we're the limit. I always thought my head was hard, but now I know it's solid. Oh, well, and again the voice grew sleepy. We'll have plenty of time tomorrow to think of that. I'm too tired now. Good night. I've just got to turn the corner, where Tom promptly joined him. End of chapter two. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona.